If you've ever read that passage that that comes from, it's from the, the book of Lamentations. Jeremiah spends three chapters talking about how faithless the people have been and how angry he is at God for it. And right in the middle of his anger at God and his reflection on the faithlessness of Israel, he says, but I recall this to mine and therefore I have hope. His mercies are new every morning, new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. We're going to talk a little bit about that this morning, the idea of faithlessness and faith. And what does it mean to be a real Christian? One of the things I loved about college is I began to read books and, and think about ideas of what is authentic faith. I remember I was sitting in my dorm room, my ninth grade year. I became a Christian when I was two. I got baptized in sixth grade. I felt like I'd had a, a long run with God and Christ. I, I knew He was with me during difficult times and happy times. I, I loved God and I wanted to please Him. But I found myself closing the last page of this book um, called The Gospel According to Jesus. And I was shell-shocked to discover or think at that moment I wasn't a real Christian. I was suddenly flooded with fear and insecurity. And I just wondered, how could I have missed it? I read several passages. This is one particular one that stood out at me. It said, repentance means turning away from your sins. I believe that. Listen, no one who is saved will fail to repent. I just started reflecting and thinking, well, i got a lot of ways in which I don't repent. It's like I was thinking about ways that day I hadn't repented of an attitude or a thought or some hidden secret or some thing I should have said. No one who is saved will fail to submit. And I thought of all the ways in which I would see a sign that says don't step on the grass and actually made me want to step on the grass. There are all kinds of much more serious ways in which I refuse to submit fully to his lordship in my life. No one who's truly saved will fail to obey. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, I have a lot of ways in which I fail to obey. I, I see myself progressively trying to please God more, but I also become more and more aware of just how disobedient my heart is. True faith results in an absolutely and totally transformed life. Absolutely? And totally transformed? Well, man, if that's what it means, then not only am I not there, I'm not even close to being there. To say, Lord, Lord, and then disobey is the moral equivalent of a Judas kiss. And I was just shell-shocked by this, and I'm not trying to pick on John MacArthur, because there's versions of this teaching through every place you might learn. And here's what you know. You know that suddenly you're motivated to do more, but you're motivated to do it out of place of fear and insecurity. And I bring it up because a passage today was one referenced in this book, from Mark, and I think the challenge gets bigger. What is going on here, and what does it mean to be a real Christian? When he'd called the people to himself, and his disciples also, Jesus said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up your cross and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gain the whole world but you lose your soul? And what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You know, whoever's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in glory with his Father and his holy angels. Do you feel the tension? A real Christian is someone apparently who denies himself and takes up his cross and follows him and, and loses it all. 
few years ago, my daughter was reading a book by one of uh, John's disciples, a guy named Francis Chan, and a book called Crazy Love. And she got about halfway into the book, and she said, Dad, I don't think I'm a real Christian. I said, well, tell me about that, honey. I, I don't know anyone who wants to please God, a few people more than you. And she read me one of the excerpts from the book. It says, a lukewarm Christian is an oxymoron. There is no such thing. To put it plainly, churchgoers who are lukewarm are not Christians. We will not see them in heaven. And she was having the same moment I had in my freshman year. What does it mean to be a real Christian who grows? And if only real Christians grow, then how do you know if you're a real Christian? And what do you do with the lukewarm spots? Because I know about me, I may not be lukewarm everywhere, but i got lukewarm spots everywhere. In fact, as I grow as a Christian, I find lukewarm pockets. I find cold pockets in my heart, in my attitude, in my actions. So does that mean I'm not a real Christian, or does that mean that God really needs to grow in some areas? I bring it up because, not to pick on Francis Chan, I think he's a good man. I think John MacArthur's a good man. I think as all of us try and wrestle with what it means to grow as a disciple, it's important for us to understand what motivates real growth. The why behind the what. Here's a contrast between whatever you call it, a works-based growth and a gospel-based growth. The work says, I've got to obey to prove I'm a real Christian so that God will accept me. A works-based approach says, I obey to earn his approval from God so that he will approve me. A works-based system says, I obey to show God how really serious I am so that God will be serious with me. I won't be ashamed so that he won't be ashamed of me. And the so that is the problem. Your why... Your why is, I'm not secure in who God is is and how he feels toward me. A gospel approach also has obedience. It also has change. It also has serious conviction, but it has a totally different motivation. It's not so that, it's because. I obey, and I want to know exactly what God wants me to obey, but I do it because he accepted me. I deny myself. Why? Because he denied himself for me. I take up my cross. I crucify myself. Because he was crucified for me. I lay down my life for others because he laid down his life for me. I'm not ashamed of him because he was not ashamed of me. Now, all the components are in both. But you feel the power in the second one? The the gospel, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power. The power for pleasing. The power for obeying. The power for growth comes when you understand what he's done for you. And if you know what he's done for you and it doesn't change you, you haven't really looked at what he's done for you. Let me put it this way. We're going to get a little theological before we dive into the text. If your sanctification proves your justification, you'll never know where you are. Let me define those words. In the Bible, justification is the moment at which you become a Christian and God separates you from your sin. It's just as if I'd never sinned. So the moment you say, Christ, I need you to be my forgiver, he positions you glorified with him, and you are justified. But how do you know if you're justified? Well, sanctification is the process by which you're not saved from the penalty of sin. You're saved from the power of sin in your life, where you begin to change. You begin to transform. You begin to have different thoughts and and different attitudes and, and different feelings. You begin to have the fruit of the Spirit flow in your life. But here's the problem. 
if my sanctification, my growth as a Christian, proves if I'm a real Christian, you're never going to know where you are. Because every time you sin, you're going to go, maybe I'm not a real Christian. And then you start hiding what you do wrong. I talked to a college student about a year ago, and he got into one of these movements. And he just was like, oh my goodness, I realize that I still lust, and I lust a lot. And I just realized I must not be a real Christian. So he's always going back and re-praying the prayer and re-asking Jesus into his life because he never knew where he was. The insecurity of his sanctification defining whether or not he'd really been justified. And both are important. But when your sanctification defines or proves your justification, you don't know where you are. Because every time you find a new weak spot, you wonder if you're really one of God's chosen. But on the other hand, if your justification empowers your sanctification, you'll never forget where you are. You say, oh my goodness, I found another dead spot, another lukewarm spot, and he died for that also. And that's not an excuse to keep doing it. God, in the same way you empowered those other areas of my life, empower this area. God, you accepted me and loved me and forgave me knowing I would do this. You made me pleasing to you. I want to please you more. Help me in this area. Help me grow in this area. Because I'm secure as your child, based on the justification you've done, I want to grow and please you more. Now, both of them have justification and sanctification. And all of us are wrestling with how to grow. And I'm going to tell you, over time, if your sanctification proves your justification, you can sort of conjure up a lot of willpower for a few days or a few weeks, and then you wear out because you eventually stumble upon some weak spots, some lukewarm spots. But if you meditate on what he's done for you, how he has justified you, and you begin to run that into the implications of your life, something powerful happens, as we'll see today. I say this also because George Whitfield, I don't know if you know his famous preacher, he was very dramatic. He would get up and preach in the early days, 1700s. And he talks about how many times we get into denominationalism and all these sort of sub-issues, and we don't get back to the power of the gospel. So one day he was preaching, and he looked up uh, a whole group of people. He looked up to heaven, and he said, St. Peter! Are there any Methodists in heaven? St. Peter says, no, there are no Methodists in heaven. St. Peter, are there any Baptists in heaven? No, there are no Baptists in heaven. St. Peter, are there any Presbyterians in heaven? No, there are no Presbyterians in heaven. Everybody's like shocked. I mean, the creeds were what what, what defined whether or not you're a Christian. St. Peter, who's who's in heaven then? Christians. People who believe in Jesus. This was such a radical idea that you might have different denominations with different opinions on things, but the real heart of the gospel was Jesus and what he did for you and playing that out in your life. So we're going to look at three ways in which this message of justification can empower your sanctification, that the why can infuse the what. First one we're going to look at is the why precedes the what. The what is important, what we do, how we obey, how we deny ourselves. That's important as long as you get the why first. The why precedes the what? Before Jesus launches into this very challenging passage about denying yourself and taking up the cross, he first clearly articulates the why, that he was, what he was going to do for them. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, that he would be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes, that he would be killed and after three days rise again. So before he tells them that he wants them to be willing to go to the cross, he tells them that he will be doing that for them. Why would they do it for somebody else? Because he would do it for them. In fact, embedded in the passage is that very why. 
He called the people to himself and said, whoever desires to come after me, you've you got to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for, and here's the why, for why? And to earn your approval? No. For my sake and the gospel's sake. When you're motivated by the why of what God has done for you, you can be unstoppable. And that's the reason you choose to deny yourself and take up your cross. Well, what is the gospel? The gospel is not, I give God my resume and I hope I belong. The gospel is that he gives me his resume and tells me I belong. The gospel is not, I work to earn approval. It's that he worked and gave me God's approval. It's not that I work hoping to be accepted. It's that because I'm accepted, I want to work. See, the components are all the same, but if you get them out of order, you lose the power. The why precedes the what. But also, the why motivates the what. Go to the next part. So if you understand what he did for you, and it's not showing up in your life in any way, God says that you have not meditated. You have not seen what he's done for you. The, the why should motivate some what's in your life. What, number one, are you denying yourself? He calls his, the people to him and his disciples and says, whoever desires to come after me, you need to deny yourself. Literally, to keep on denying yourself is the Greek tense. You need to daily choose to say, I want to deny my self-centeredness. I'm going to deny my bad decision-making. I want to choose to go with his wisdom laid out for me rather than my wisdom for me. I'm going to stop living duplicitous lives and pretending I'm one way with my parents when I'm living a totally different way other places and pretending that God doesn't care, that those what's don't matter. Those what's do matter. The problem is, as Americans, we're asking a question that the New Testament audience never did. Here's the question. What's the least? What's the least I have to do to get into heaven? I mean, like the least. Pray a prayer. I can do whatever I want. The New Testament audience never asked that question. They said, he's going to die for me. He loved so well. He forgave so well. He lived so well. What must I do to have that kind of life in me? They didn't ask the question, what's the least I do to get into heaven? They said, how can I have the kind of life my rabbi had? He said, let me tell you how to have that kind of life. You deny yourself. You're going to see me do it. I'm going to be in a garden, I'm going to be praying, and I'm going to deny my comfort, and I'm going to deny my convenience, and put your needs ahead of my own, and I will say, not my will, but yours be done. Go and deny yourself, because you will get salvation, because I denied myself. The why precedes the what. The why motivates the what. You're going to see me up on a cross, where I could call a garrison of angels to come and rescue me, but I will stay on that cross. I will endure all of the pain and all of the agony of all generations. I will literally experience eternal hell for all mankind. And I will deny myself pleasure and I will deny myself rescue because for the joy set before me, the joy set before me, I endure the cross for you. Now go and deny yourself for others. And keep on denying yourself. Keep on coming face to face with your own self-centeredness and saying, I've got to deny that. I've got to not deny that. I think life comes through exalting myself, but Jesus showed me life comes through denial of self. Henry Nouwen Catholic mystic who uh, was Harvard trained in divinity school and he was a sought after speaker. He was like doing the circuit, writing books. Everybody wanted to hear Henry Nouwen. At the peak of his career, he disappeared. He disappeared and he went to work with the mentally handicapped in daybreak where he would spend hours every day helping the mentally handicapped get dressed, learn how to talk, 
And he was shocked to find out that all of the skills and accolades he'd accumulated in his career were virtually worthless in this environment with another human being. They didn't care if he went to Harvard. They didn't care that people liked his books. They wanted to know if they, he would help them get dressed. They needed comfort from him. They needed compassion from him. They needed appreciation from him. And, and he writes in his books later on after this experience that he just came face to face with just how naked he really was. That all the things he'd accumulated to make himself feel important were so worthless when it came to just caring for another human being. Philip Yancey, a Christian writer, came to visit with him one day and he watched as, as, as Henry Nowen spent two to three hours dressing his friend Adam. He called Henry over. He said, Henry, have you ever thought about how much you gave up to sit in a room with an unknown man and three hours of your life was spent helping him get dressed? You gave up talking to the thousands and preaching to the millions. And Henry looked at him and said, I haven't given up anything. He said, you think Adam's getting the benefits of our friendship? No, I get far more benefits from our friendship than Adam. See, my whole life I've accumulated, a whole life I've exalted myself. And God has shown me what it means to be really loved. What it means to really love. What it means to really be a human being. He's taught me things that I would have hidden in my abundance. He said, I've learned more about God in this experience than I ever did in my divinity experience. Now, I wish I could say I was in the same place. You know, Quinn turned six this year with special needs. I think if I knew now the sacrifices involved and the challenges of being his dad and I was to go back and visit myself seven years ago, I'm not sure I would say the pros outweigh the cons. I'm not sure I'd say what Henry Nowen did, that denying myself is, it is so worth it. I'm not quite as spiritual as Henry Nowen. But there are moments I see it. There's moments I get it. There's moments that I see the life that is bestowed in me through a God who who denied himself for me and asked me to deny myself. We've been teaching Quinn to speak for the last year, six years, the last year specifically. And he's gone from no words to one word to two words. He's up to three word sentences now. So much so that I can actually converse with my son. I didn't think I'd ever be able to do that. Dada? Yes, Quinn. Hungry. Hungry? Yes. Chip? Chip. Never thought I'd have these conversations. And now when it's bedtime, he'll grab my hand and he'll drag me up the stairs with his big old blankie. He'll get up to his bed and he jumps in. He throws the blanket over his face and he always looks up at me with a big grin. It's time for the night game. And with this contagious smile and contagious laugh that he has, he'll go, he wants a kiss. So I'll come in next to him every night. I'll pull up the blankie and I'll give him a kiss. And I'll say, I love you. And just in the last month, he started to say it back. I love you. I never knew I could be so excited about three words. I never know how good it could feel to be loved. But I'm being loved and lost these days. And I tell you, as a person who likes to accomplish, a person who likes to get stuff done, a person who loves having a checklist at the end of my day, God has taught me that I'm more like Quinn, and he would love me if I don't check off anything on the list. He loves me the way I love Quinn, for who he is. 
I'm learning more that by denying myself, I'm more in touch with his love for me because we made a decision to make a lifetime decision to have Quinn in our life. So I'm not a spiritual Henry Nowen, but I am beginning to discover that denying yourself is the pathway to life. Jesus goes on and says it's not only the what of denying yourself, but to take up your cross. Again, it's a Roman metaphor because the Jews didn't crucify people, the Romans did. That we need to daily take our self-centeredness, take our rights, take our desire to put ourselves ahead of our own, to take up our coarse jesting, to take up our complaining, to take up our bad attitudes. And every day we need to put them on the cross and nail them up there again. But why? Because he nailed himself to the cross. Because if he was here today, and if that what it took to, to bring you into his presence every day, he would put himself back up on the cross. And so we take up our cross, and we follow him. And the Greek tense, again, is we keep on following him. So as Christians, it's not a prayer long ago, the least I need to do to get into heaven. It's every day I step up and I say, your mercy is anew every morning. Today, I want to re-crucify myself. Today, I want to say it's your life, it's your day, it's your priorities. I want to keep on following you. Why? Because you kept on following God in the worst of circumstances. And that why motivates my what? He says a third thing. You save yourself. You find real life by sacrifice. See, I don't really believe that. I say I believe that. But I think you save yourself by exalting. I think you save yourself by accumulating. That's why my heart is broken. And Jesus says that's not... Oh, it'll last for a little bit. But it will not get you what you really want. Real saving comes through sacrifice. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake, there's that why again. But here's the what. You, you need to, you want to save your life? You've got to do something. You've got to lose it. And when you lose it for my sake and the gospel's sake, you will save it. You will save it. It's interesting the word Jesus uses. He uses the word psyche. So the word save is like psyche, and the word life's like psyche. So it's like saying, if you want a psyche, you're a psyche. You need to do this. You want real psyche, real life, real purpose? It comes through psyche, losing yourself. Instead of demanding your rights in, in, in a battle with your son or daughter or with your wife, instead of battling for what's right, humility and teachability. Instead of always saying, it's all about me, you say, how can I serve? And you're going to find that you find psyche when you psyche control and worry and anxiety in your life. But this verse has also motivated many to give of their real physical life. This promise is so real and so powerful that many have literally given their lives because of this verse. So last year we've heard the tragic stories of the ISIS terrorists who have lined up Christians a lot of Coptic Christians in that area, which is like their denomination, for lack of a better word. They killed 21 about six months ago, but they printed the names of all the people they were going to kill. And there were only 20 names that they printed, but 21 people died. They lined them up and said, will you deny Christ? They put them down on their knees. You probably saw them in their jumpsuits. And if you listened in, they were whispering, help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. I want to stay faithful. I want to be bold. Help me, Jesus. Now, if you were me, or you have the sort of the modern, sloppy, agape, wishy-washy gospel that we have today, you might think like I would think as a creative thinker. I'll just tell them, but I'll cross my fingers behind my back. 
I mean, God's going to forgive me. And as soon as I'm done, I'll say, hey, God, there's a lot more years of good ministry I could do. So I had to sort of lie then because I knew you'd forgive me, right? That's what I would do. But that's not what God's calling us to do. God is saying, I did not, I was not ashamed of you as I stood on the cross and spit upon. I was willing to lose my life to lift you up. And as these 20 were on their knees, the ISIS soldiers turned to a Muslim man who watched this. He had never seen such conviction, such confidence. Because in the Muslim religion, you don't know for sure if you're going to get to heaven. If you're a martyr, it's sort of an instant trip to heaven. But otherwise, it's you hope you've obeyed Allah enough and you've followed the pillars enough and you hope. He'd never seen such conviction and confidence. And he said, I want what they got. And it's worth my life. And they turned to him and said, who do you worship? And he says, in the words of Ruth, actually, their God is my God. And he kneeled down next to them and became the 21st person killed that day. Because he saw that they had life and he was living in fear and insecurity. The why motivated a what, a pretty serious what, of giving his life. The third what that Jesus gives here, or fourth rather, is you gain, and this is so counterintuitive, you gain by losing. Now one of the problems with this verse is that we have so heard this used by Billy Graham or somebody as a gospel presentation for people who don't know Jesus, we don't even apply it to ourselves. Yep, that's right, those people, those, those unconvinced, they need to hear this. What shall it profit a man if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? He's talking to Christian disciples. He's talking to you and me. What will it profit you if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? But we don't know what a soul is. We assume that means getting to heaven. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Let's talk about that. The Bible describes us as triune beings. We have a body that is dying. We have a soul composed of our will, our emotions, and our thoughts, and we have a spirit. When you're born, you have a dead spirit. When you become a Christian, you ask God to forgive you for all the deadness in your life, and he takes that dead spirit out of the middle, and he fills it or puts in there his Holy Spirit. So here's his Holy Spirit right here. It's now filled this dead spot. You now have a brand new spirit. That's the engine. That's the engine in you. That's the deposit of the hope and confidence that you will be in heaven. Now, we got heaven out of the way. Let's get on with it. Holy Spirit's living in you so that it can save your soul. Get to heaven? No. Save your soul. Rescue you or deliver you from the broken thoughts, the broken feelings, the broken wants in your life. God wants his spirit in a Christian to save your soul. What does it look like? If he denied himself, why are my thoughts about exalting myself? I need to save my soul. I need to start thinking about gaining through losing. I think it's about not denying myself. My soul is broken. I could gain the whole world exalting myself and I would lose my soul because he denied himself. I need to plop that thought into my head. I need to start denying myself. I need to start gaining by sacrificing. You see, as you grow, as you are sanctified, your thoughts change. Your emotions change. You begin to want the things he wants. Why? Because you see what he did for you. And you begin to change. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? 
You know where freedom comes? You want better freedom in your will? More freedom in your thoughts? You want less worry in your life? You've got to let the Holy Spirit and God's Word play it out. Paul will say later, you've got to work out your salvation. He's talking to Christians. You need to work out the implications of your justification to your life. And Christians don't do that. They go, I guess I pray to prayer. I'm going to heaven, so I'm fine. You know why Christians don't grow? Nobody does this. And yet this is the secret to growing as a Christian. You start saying, is my heart in line with his heart? No, I want to please him because he, pleased, he made me pleasing to him. Are my thoughts in line with his thoughts? No, then you need to put on the mind of Christ and take your thoughts captive and transform yourself through the renewing of your mind. It takes work. You do stuff to work out the implications of the why. I'll give you another verse in the book of James. James is writing to a group of Christians again, and he talks about our soul. He, look what he says. As a Christian, you need to do stuff. You need to lay aside filthiness in your life. You need to lay aside the overflow of wickedness in your life. And you need to receive with meekness. Now look at it, it's so weird. You've got to receive something that's already been implanted in you. Isn't that weird? Which is it? Do you want me to receive it or is it already in me? Both. It's been implanted in your spirit but has not been received into your soul. So when you receive God's truth, you say, I want to start thinking like God thinks. The implanted word is now affecting how I think. I really want to exalt myself. I really want to tell a story that makes me better than I am. I really want to take credit. But I'm going to receive the implanted word and say he didn't exalt himself. He spread credit around. He took the blame for me. I'm now going to have a mindset that I gain by sacrificing. I want to spread the credit around and I want to take blame if it helps others. This is how you grow as a Christian. And yet I would say less than 5%, and that's being very generous, uh, of people I know really try and do this. But you want to change? This is it. You want the secret? This is it. You gain by losing. You lose control. You lose your pride. You lose yourself. You lose the me-firstness. You lose the holding your fist and saying it's all about me. You lose the greed, and you find your psyche, your life, sanctified like you always wanted. The why precedes the what. The why motivates the what. But then the last question is the hardest one as we conclude. The why rewards you where? In the next slide, we have the problem that we started with. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him, the Son of Man, also will be ashamed when he comes in glory with his Father and the holy angels. And the problem is we think we're in heaven. We think we're at the pearly gates and we're saying, God is sitting there at the pearly gates and saying, are you going in or are you not? You're ashamed of me, so I'm ashamed of you. But I want to suggest to you that that's not where we are. We're not at the pearly gates about going to heaven. We're standing at the bema seat of Christ. See, in the Bible it describes the, the great throne judgment where you determine your eternal destiny, heaven or hell. But Christians will stand before the bema seat of Christ. And when you stand before the bema seat, it's not whether or not you get into heaven. That's dealt with. But you will be rewarded for how you sanctified yourself, how you lived out his kingdom, how obedient you were. You get rewards for that. In fact, the image used of this idea of coming in glory is used in Revelation. Talking to Christians, it says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me. To render to every man, meaning every believer in the context, according to what he has done. 
So we're not at the pearly gates, we're at the Bema seat. It was an image used, it's mentioned in uh, Romans and in 1 Corinthians, several other places, where you, like at the end of the Olympics, you would stand up and they would put a wreath over your head if you won. It was a reward. It was an accolade. It was a well done, my good and faithful servant. And God says, if you're ashamed of being with me and living me out, you're losing your rewards. To which, as an American, we say, but I'm in heaven, right? What's the big deal? I'm going to be happy I'm in heaven. And I would again say, we, just, we don't get a relationship at all. When somebody tells you they love you unconditionally, a spouse, a parent, is, is, is the normal response to say, well, great, then I'm going to abuse you and use you, and I'm not even going to try and please you. Sadly, that is what's broken in us. And that is not what the Bible endorses at all. And you need to not work harder. You need to go back and say, I need to work out the implications. If he did this to make me pleasing, why would I not want to please him? What is broken in me? God, help me. I am so broken that I'm not even doing what's rational in what I want and what I think and what I feel. As an exec board and elders, we once a year get together and we have a day of fasting and prayer. This last year we watched a video series, a video recording of a guy who acted out the bema seat of Christ and what it means to stand before God. The Bible says some people will get to heaven and they will get in by the skin of their teeth as if escaping fire. They just barely get in. There's no rewards. It's, well, you made it. But there's others that Jesus will turn to and say, well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. The way you prayed, the way you sacrificed, the way you gave. Oh, come here, everyone, come here. Let me tell you, this one died for me. This one bowed down and lost his life for me. He gets the victor's crown, the martyr's crown, and there's a great celebration. Does he love everybody the same? Yes. But I don't want to miss my crown. And I don't want to miss my wreath, and nor do you. With this ridiculous Christian mindset or American mindset of what's the least I need to do. Don't you want everything God has for you? I do. Here's one more illustration. Imagine a father has three sons. I will say two sons and a daughter. And one son is rebellious, runs away. And the father loves all three the same. They're all got his blood in them. But two associate with the dad. They connect with the dad. They do things with the dad. They're in relationship with the dad. The other one has run away. And the father writes letters to him and tries to meet with him. And, and five years go by and the son says, I don't want anything to do with you, dad. Another five years goes by, and the dad's heart is broken. He keeps trying to extend offers of love and grace. I mean, this is his son. Twenty years go by, and the son is just ashamed of the father. He does, I don't want anything to do with your life and your resources. No, I'm fine by myself. Thank you very much. And the father's heart's broken, but he has an intimate relationship with his other two children. And then one day he dies. And they have a reading of the will, and all three children are invited even the first one? Yes. Why? Because he has the blood of the Father. That's how you get into the reading of the will. The Smiths weren't invited. Only the Hovens were invited. Because part of getting to the reading of the will is that you have to have the blood of the Father. And in the reading of the, of the will, the Father tells of his love for all three of his kids, his heart for them, his love for them, his forgiveness for little and big things they've done their whole life. Then it comes time for the passing out of the estate. And though he loves them all the same, and though they're all there in the room because of the blood, the rewards are based on the intimacy. And the first son does not receive any of the estate. Though he's in the door by the blood, 
he doesn't seem rewards because of his lack of intimacy. Not because of the father's desire, because of his desire. And so, because he was ashamed of the father's estate, he does not participate in the father's estate at the rewards. That is the image going on here in the passage. Too many Christians aren't being sanctified. Too many Christians have fallen into legalism where their sanctification proves their justification. Other people have a justification and they don't think it has anything to do with their sanctification. I want to propose a third way that your justification must empower your sanctification. You'll never forget where you are and you will begin to grow. So here's the question as we conclude. What must I do in light of what he's done? What must I do in my attitude, in my checkbook, in my calendar? What must I do in my marriage? What must I do in my career? What must I do in light of what he's done? Or what must I do in light of what he will do? The rewards I want to have. The words I want to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Dawson Trout, Trotman rather, was the head of Navigators. He spent his whole life bringing people to a point of justification where they could understand a Jesus who forgives them, not based on what they do, but based on what he did. And then he spent his life training them through navigators how to grow and how to be sanctified and how to become more like Jesus. Time magazine in 1956, I believe, had an article about his death. He was in a boat. He'd been skiing for two hours. He was an excellent skier, excellent swimmer, but he was just worn out. And like a long day at the beach, you don't realize how much energy has been taken out of you. He was sitting in the back of the boat. There's a little girl toward the back of the boat, a teenager, I believe. And he said, do you swim very well? She said, well, not very well. He said, why don't you move up to the seat that's a little bit closer because it's pretty wavy. So she moved up to a more comfortable seat, a little closer up to the front of the boat. And just a few minutes later, they hit a gigantic wave and it knocked both Dawson and this girl who couldn't swim out of the boat. They fell into the water. He swam over to her. He was holding her up again. He's an excellent swimmer. So he was holding her up in the air. The boat circled back around. He just didn't realize how tired he was that day. He kept holding her up. The boat circled around. They reached down and grabbed her arms and pulled her in. They went back to reach and grabbed Dawson's arms, and he was gone. He sank. Later they would find him and his body. And in his epitaph, in the Time magazine, he died the way he lived, always holding other people up. Now that's sanctification. Oh, that would be said of us. Oh, that would be said of me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your call to grow, your call not to be complacent. And yet thank you for a motivation that is so powerful, it changes everything if we get it. May we dig deeper into that in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to make one last announcement before we go is that we are starting a, a series in our exploring service next week called Honest to God. We're going to take the whole church over the next few weeks through a prayer journey. We're going to have times to pray together. We're going to have a prayer journal to help you in your journey with God, how to pray when you're happy, how to pray when you're sad, how to pray when you're angry. And so I just want to pray with us and join with us starting next week as we have a, a, a six-week period of prayer together as a church. You won't want to miss it. It all starts next week as we jump in the fall. Thanks again. We'll see you all.